0: I'm Kim Raycon, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind the scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Catherine Mayer. In Attack of the 50-Foot Women, From Man-Made Mess to a Better Future, The Truth About Global Inequality and How to Unleash Female Potential, Catherine Mayer asserts, every woman lives with the constant tinnitus hum of low-level sexism. If gender equality promises benefits not just to women, but to everyone, why aren't we embracing it? And how can we speed the pace of change? Fewer than 9% of world leaders are female, but the few women who have broken through include towering figures such as German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Could 50-foot women save the day? Author, activist, and intersectional feminist Catherine Mayer takes us through these questions and more, as well as how she accidentally started a political party, the Women's Equality Party in the UK in 2015. We sat down with Catherine when she was in New York for this episode. Attack of the 50-Foot Woman is available now in paperback original from our imprint, Harper 360. Today on the podcast, we have with us Catherine Mayer, author of Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, From Man-Made Mess to a Better Future, The Truth About Global Inequality and How to Unleash Female Potential. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Um, so I just have a my first question, I guess, is about the title uh, and the reference uh, of your book. So it stems from the 1958 film of the same name. So why choose Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman?
1: Well, um, and mine, I should say, is Attack of the Fifty Foot Women, plural. So so I have I have quite a lot of rampaging fifty foot <laughs> women in my book. Um, but the reason that that film. Appealed to me and is a kind of motif throughout the book is because in 1958, when they made the B movie, uh, the idea of what a, what the power of woman unleashed would look like is that it would be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, the story is that the the perfectly normal-sized woman, um, has a close encounter with a space alien, uh, grows mysteriously to 50 foot tall, and immediately uses that new stature to maim and kill. And so it was, yes, it's a B-movie, yes, to a certain extent, I imagine it was always a bit tongue-in-cheek, but nevertheless, the idea that that women were quite scary and empowered women even more Gary uh, is very clear, and that film then undergoes a transformation in 1993. Mm -hmm. It re emerges as a movie with Daryl Hannah by the same name, but this time it becomes a parable of female empowerment. And you know, it it sort of gets a happy ending because she does good things with with her uh, power. It's still actually a really terrible film, actually, worse (laughs) probably than the B movie. Um, But I I had thought about it, Um, what really sparked it was there was an ad campaign that I kept seeing in London where of course we have the the wonderful double-decker buses Mm -hmm. and there were these giant posters of um, Scarlett Johansson sprawled across the top of double-decker buses uh, and it was advertising a particular designer brand but it looked like she had sort of seized hold of the buses and this is an actress who is a highly intelligent, um, has chosen some some roles that are uh, stereotype breaking. But this particular campaign was the opposite. It was something that, again, she looked although huge, she looked sort of prostrate and pornified, and to me that also then came to symbolise what what women, the imagery of women, the way we are portrayed, and what that actually means more broadly for the way women are perceived and women's potential is perceived.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that you talk about throughout um, your book is this place of equalia. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that is so describe it first.
1: Well the reason um, in a way part of the inspiration for the book was because um, I'm not just a writer but I'm a political activist and when I was going around advocating for the Women's Equality Party which is a UK political party that I co-founded I realized that one of the reasons people were nervous of voting for it even though on the doorstep you would find people were by and large incredibly positive about the idea, was that they just couldn't imagine a gender-equal world. And it's not surprising that they couldn't because there's nowhere in the world that's gender-equal. And so I thought, okay, well maybe one of the things that I need to do with this book is not just describe the present, not just talk about what the mechanisms are that are holding us back and what the ways to break them might be, but to actually take people to that gender equal world and show them how much better it is. So I'm not describing a utopia. I'm not describing a place where there are no problems. But I'm describing a place that's much better because it harnesses uh, the talents of all genders, as opposed to uh, you know the the what we have at the moment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you talk about not wanting to get rid of gender, but you want to see what it's like to eliminate potentially eliminate gender conditioning. Yeah. So what did what's the difference? Well, I mean,
1: what none of us know what any of us would be without that conditioning. Mm-hmm. So you know, part of the problem of any discussion about um, what what a gender equal society looks like and why it's hard to imagine. Is because we are all socialised from before we are consciously aware of it into certain um, normative kinds of behaviour that um, actually restrict and shape who we are, and so the a lot of the kind of assumptions about what is hardwired uh, in into you know what what sexual differences uh, what sex differences are hardwired have been shown by science to be nothing like as clear-cut. So, for example, it always used to be thought that male brain and female brains were different. Mm -hmm. In fact, there is huge overlap and brains are plastic and they change with use and with conditioning. So... What part of what I was wanting to look at was to think about as a thought experiment, mm-hmm. what would this world look like if you started to strip away that gender conditioning um, would you know and it's very interesting because this is something where women quite often are the ones who will cling to certain parts of of that um, you know the the uh, given cultural behavior, so I mean one of the ones that that amuses me is that we like to think that we're we're possibly nicer than men, mm-hmm. that we're more peaceable, more consensual, you know, and actually there's very little evidence for that, but there is evidence for our behaviors being more likely to be like that now because that's how we're brought up to be mm-hmm. um i uh, you know the the idea that in some way there is a biological difference that makes us nicer is is quite dubious
0: yeah yeah nasty nasty women right yeah well i think we thanks to thanks to donald trump we all want to be nasty women <laughs> yeah, we aspire we inspired to it you mentioned, rather casually, uh, for someone who started a political party, that you started a political party. The Women's Equality Party in the UK uh, has been doing great things for the last couple of years. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you started uh, the WV, uh and why you felt it was necessary to do so. Um, I think part of the
1: reason I'm casual about it is because because i founded it accidentally which i i agree it sounds very strange to found a political party accidentally um but that's what happened i was at um there's a, a festival that started in the uk called the women of the world festival the wow festival and uh, i was at in 2015 um a an event at the WOW Festival that was showcasing women in politics and it had uh, women women MPs from three different parties talking about what their parties would do for women if they were to win power in the coming election. And it was in a big theatre and the audience, instead of being excited by these great women on stage, was... Uh, very clearly evincing depression because nobody actually believed that those parties would do what they were promising to do for women. And also, none of those women, even though they were incredibly bright, vibrant women, were anywhere near the leadership of their parties. Mm-hmm. And I kept hearing women saying that they weren't going to vote at all. And of course, next year marks the 100th anniversary of the partial enfranchisement of women in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I was just so depressed that people who had not even for 100 years enjoyed the right to vote would uh, already be discounting it Um, that I found myself on my feet and holding a microphone and saying maybe what we need is a women's equality party Mm -hmm. to break the logjam in politics, to maintain a focus on, on women, on gender issues, and to get this problem sorted. What I wasn't saying is... I'm going to go home and found it but (laughs) by the time I got home social media had
0: different ideas Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and one of the great things about um, the women's equality party is is the motto their motto is because equality is better for everyone which is a remarkably inclusive phrase uh, and it puts the onus and the work of that inclusivity on everyone that it's not just the work of women to do yeah how how do you try to get men to see that they are part of that work, that it's not just something that sounds nice to them because it's something that can help their wife or their girlfriend or their mother mm. or their sister?
1: No, I know. Um, it's really frustrating. Uh, there are so many men who want to be allies to women, who are allies to women, but who still miss some of the point. Mm-hmm. So um, I have already been touring a bit with this book in the uk and it is very frequently the case that men come up to me with the book to sign and then they say um i'm buying it for my sister for my mother for my wife and it's like oh please just buy it for (laughs) yourself really um and that that idea that it is something that they are doing for us and not for them um is incredibly deep-seated and incredibly mistaken Mm -hmm. because, and it's one of the things that I make a point of um, describing in the book and also through all my advocacy Mm -hmm. that all of the evidence in countries that achieve more gender equality is that it doesn't just make for better outcomes for women but also for men, Uh, better mental health outcomes is one of the really striking ones. You know the the pressure that there is on men to behave in certain ways that are not just outmoded, but are increasingly difficult in a world which is structurally losing jobs all the time. So that role of the breadwinner um, is in in an increasingly precarious world is one that confers a huge amount of pressure without without very much reward. Mm-hmm. Um, that thing of, of being sort of emotionally bottled up, that's not just a stereotype that is absolutely to do with the way that boys are brought up. Mm-hmm. And again, you get much better outcomes if you can change that. Mm-hmm. So, But equality being better for everyone, I mean, again, so that... I, I truly believe it, but I also wanted to explore that in the book. And I wanted, for example, to explore if you had a more gender equal world, would that necessarily mean you had one um, that was better at combating racism? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, you have to. I'm an I'm an intersectional feminist. I I think about the intersections between different um, characteristics and situations, and how mm-hmm. those impact and i think this is the only way to do politics or to analyze these things um and the, you cannot just make assumptions that what you are you know and, and again as a politician i can't i can't make assumptions that what i'm doing is going to feed through into better outcomes for all women i have to think and about what the different situations of women are and how and think about how this might actually enable a better outcome for the women perhaps whose experience is furthest from my own uh, so that's a that's an ongoing you know that's that's a constant piece of work if you like right mm-hmm.
0: yeah and so too is the question of women's visibility in media in politics uh, in technology and in social media and I'm wondering um, a lot of what perhaps, Makes women shy away from talking about either their experience or, or becoming engaged um, in in social justice issues is sort of the blowback, the inevitable blowback mm-hmm. perhaps that they get. And a, a striking example of this uh, in the UK, at least, um, is what happens to the Labour MP Jess Phillips seemingly any time she opens her mouth about anything, she gets a huge, huge um, negative response uh, a lot of the time. Um, and it's more
1: than a negative
0: response. It, it's violence, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, I mean,
1: uh, the, the worst example, of course, is Joe Cox, yeah. who, who was the, the, the MP who was actually murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I think a lot of the threats against Jess Phillips have been credible threats, so it isn't just online threats. Um, Stella, when I talked about... Um, the event at the Women of the World Festival where I uh, suggested uh, mm-hmm. first suggested the Women's Equality Party. One of the MPs on stage was Stella Creasy, the Labour MP. She got a flurry of death threats around the same time as a campaigner called Caroline Criado-Perez, mm-hmm. who was campaigning, um, something that's of course also going on in the US, campaigning to have a woman on uh, the money, mm-hmm. uh, on our money. Mm-hmm. Um, she wanted um, Jane Austen on the £5 note and this provoked this flurry of death threats around that time. Just because I know Stella Creasy and was exchanging text messages with her, I started getting uh, the same. You know, I got I got a death threat that was serious. I mean, it, it was actually I didn't think there was anything serious about it at all. But the police took it seriously and sort of told me to move out of my house. Um, and that was literally just because of being a woman, and and possibly knowing Stella Creasy, and a, and quite a lot of other women in the UK got this sort of rather cartoonish threat at the same time. And we all, I mean, I thank God have never had to endure anything like Jess or Stella have. Mm-hmm. But um, in the last in the last election, the Women's Equality Party ran its first ever. Um, general election and we, all of our candidates got incredible amounts of unpleasantness online but um, some of it again translated beyond the online world and this wonderful woman called Nimco Ali stood for us in London. Nimco is uh, she was the uh, first um, She, if she had won she would have been the first ever child refugee to make it into Parliament. She arrived in the UK as a is a refugee from Somalia, Um, and she has undergone FGM and is an extraordinary campaigner against FGM. Just an amazing woman, brilliant candidate. She received a death threat uh, posted to our office where the person issuing the threat actually signed himself Joe Cox, which was a particularly macabre thing to do um but also uh, the women working in our office late at night um received threats from a man saying he was on his way over and threatening them with violence and that was that was right at the end of the campaign so um you know uh, this this problem here i i felt i felt so terrible and stricken about it because here i was thinking by creating the women's equality party as a platform to for other you know Mm -hmm. for other women for all these voices and perspectives to get through in here i was accidentally thrusting these women into the line of this sort of behavior and and Mm -hmm. you know any people will will pretend that they're laughing it off but they don't it's it really you know, I saw Nim- Nimco and I went out campaigning together the day after that happened to her and she was really shaken. Mm-hmm. She'd had death threats before, but that one it really shook her. The women in our office were really shaken. And it that's what it's meant to do. It's really? meant to silence women. I can talk you about silencing, I can tell I am now ranting at you, but no but my point is that this is this is what every what the the trolls what the people doing this are trying to do they are trying to shut us up and it absolutely does have an impact but what it doesn't do is shut us up
0: right it's more important to talk back and talk louder if you have to yeah 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 how do you think? Because obviously, in the United States, we, we don't have we don't have the same sort of setup as in the UK in, in terms of um, the distribution of the vote. There is no first past the post system here. How can U.S. political parties, probably more so the Democratic Party than the Republican Party, take on some of or all of really the ideas that the Women's Equality Party is trying to advance in the UK? Well i mean it's a it's a
1: good question, but one of the things I would say is that the u the u s and the u k are quite similar in the sense that the barriers to women doing mm-hmm. politics here are very similar they're very it's very hard to win elections here um, it's very expensive mm-hmm. to run here, and that's the same as in the u k mm-hmm. It is stacked in favor of the big parties um you know smaller parties are outsider parties um but there is an opportunity, you know, you see the absolute profound turmoil in both the Democrats and, dare I say, the Republicans. (laughs) And though it's harder, particularly with the current brand of Republicanism, it's harder to see that that could um, offer opportunities for Mm -hmm. women to break through and create positive change. You did also see, although John McCain got the credit, you actually saw Republican women um, leading leading <laughs> yeah, the for, efforts yeah. to, to stop the healthcare mm-hmm. repeal. Absolutely. And um, so, I th- I think it is absolutely important to remember that although turbulence is um, in you know the face that it's wearing at the moment looks very threatening to women, we see our rights and protections being rolled back. Mm-hmm. It also offers opportunities, you know, and so I don't quite know within the U.S. system how these will work. But there is, you know, that there, there are young women coming through in the Democratic Party who mm-hmm. are attracting uh, attention, and there is this huge upsurge through the women's marches, through um, also through organisations like. Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. and say her name. That you know, um, mm-hmm. yep. which is looking at what happens to to black women being killed and being underreported and underrecognized. And um, this morning, I saw a protest against um, the, the repeal of DACA, mm-hmm. um, and again, there were grassroots organisations there, and there were people at that protest who had never ever been at a protest before. I spoke to some of them, mm-hmm. and they are people who have been politicised by seeing the threats that we're under that they, they now understand that this idea of progress that it's linear and it just sort of happens by itself is a lie mm-hmm. and that and so there is a great appetite for change and i mean basically i think somebody needs to start oh women's a party <laughs> here um I'm not. I'm not. Quite Are you offering? Well, the <laughs> funny thing is, somebody did start a party that they call the Women's Equality Party here, but it's not. It's very much nothing to do with what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so it might need a different name. Yeah. yeah and no, no, yeah. I am. I am a U.S. citizen in spite of my accent, but I'm not offering to do it. Here cause, <laughs> you know, I, uh, But I. But I do think that the the what the women's marches, for example, mm-hmm. unleashed was this great appetite for change this great energy but you need with energy then to channel it and to direct it and to to direct it into political activity otherwise it's going to dissipate and you'll get that kind of backlash where oh it's like we marched and we tried and nothing's happened mm-hmm. so i have quite a sense of urgency so yes i do think
0: and uh, maybe you no well, maybe <laughs> What else can i do <laughs> <laughs> no it, it is it's, it's a good question and it's one that really got me thinking about where the energy from women's marches really would go mm-hmm. in this country and, and i think it's it's something that i think is still trying to be worked out um i think that it seems like there are so many things to be urgent about everyone kind of dreads friday afternoons because then yeah. it's like what is the next news story that is going to break and upset uh, upset our world all over again but it is something that is i think anyway that is that is valuable that that needs to be needs to be done So I just have one more question for you. It's a question we ask all of our guests on our podcast. Since this is primarily geared to um, college faculty and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, I had a
1: favorite teacher at school, uh, uh, by which I mean high school. Okay. Um, I did the... um, I did the Edinburgh Book Festival with um, a book that I wrote in 2011 and, you know, you do your event there and then you sit and sign books and there was this long queue and this woman came up to me and she said, I bet you don't remember me. And I went, no, no, I absolutely do. You're Miss (laughs) Zenner. Catherine Zenner was her name. and She was um, my German teacher and I would probably not have studied German. I would not have um done gone on to university to have german as part of my course i ended up spending a year abroad in germany i then ended up going back and living in germany afterwards um it changed my life probably more than uh any other single teacher did and it was because she taught it so interestingly um and she taught it interestingly because she loved it and she was the first person to convey to me that homework wasn't something to be avoided but something to look forward to and that you know as somebody who now essentially as an author gives myself homework that lasts for four or five months (laughs) um you know that's just the writing so you know I'll give myself I'll give myself things that that I I feel like I have homework for a year of doing a book Mm -hmm. because if I'm not doing the book, I feel a bit guilty. Um, Nevertheless, I look forward to writing. I look forward to the research. I look forward to the work. And that's really the gift of this one teacher. That's excellent. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome.